Welcome to the Expansive CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman, founder of Expansive CEO and X Squared Wealth Planning. Buckle in as we explore how to create true prosperity and build a business and a life that expands beyond yourself and makes a dent in the universe. Welcome everyone to the Expansive CEO Podcast Investment Friday edition. I am your host, Hannah Chapman, and I am going solo today. Brad isn't able to be here. Brad Haynes, the Chief Investment Officer of Juncture Wealth Strategies. So I thought I would take this opportunity to answer some questions that I have gotten recently from people um, that are super interesting and also kind of prescient in the zeitgeist, if you will. Um, you know, things that, that we talk about things that you might have heard of, but don't really understand what they mean. We're going to dive in a little bit today. So one thing we're going to talk about is social security. We talked about this a little bit last week and I got a follow-up question, um, about, you know, more details around social security and how it works. Uh, so I wanted to share a little bit of that. And the other concept is called infinite banking. And you may have heard of this. Again, this is like out there as an idea, but maybe you don't know what it actually means. Um, And I want to say on both of these fronts, I don't have answers for you. I don't know what the right answer is for you um, when it comes to social security or to infinite banking, which is whole life insurance. Um, just to be completely frank, that's what it is. It's talking about how to utilize whole life insurance in a different way. Um, and this is purely educational and an opportunity for you to listen and and see if it brings up any questions for you. Um, or if there's any, you know, any questions that bubble up around these topics or something else, something for you to dig into for yourself. So again, I am not providing any recommendations and I am not saying that either of these, you know, things are the right option for you. So first let's talk about social security. So, um, my dear friend, Bob from Huntsville, uh, sent this follow-up question because he had asked about, you know, social security that we see the headlines consistently that social security is going to run out. That's the headline we see social, social security is going to run out. Um, I think the latest date we saw recently was 2033. So what does that mean? We talked about that a little bit on the podcast last week, um, that that is referring to the social security trust fund itself and that, there will likely always be some sort of benefit, no matter what happens, especially for people who are currently on benefits. So think about the elderly um, that you know they're relying on social security, people who are close to retirement. So that would be anyone in their late 50s, early 60s, like very likely social security is going to be there for you in the amount that they said it would be. Um, but that there will likely be big shifts for people who are younger. So last week, Brad was saying, you know, he's 52. He expects that there will be changes before he hits social security ages. And I am 39. I definitely believe that there will be significant changes to social security before I turn 67, which is currently my quote unquote full retirement age. 
um, or what's listed on my social security statement as, hey, when you turn 67, you could take your full benefit. I do not think that will be the case. By the time I turn 67, I think my date will be pushed back to a later age, like maybe 70 or 71, who knows? Um, So that was the context of the first question is, you know, is social security actually going to run out? And what does that mean? The follow-up question was, well, don't we pay into social security? Doesn't everyone who's working pay into social security from their paycheck every single week or every month? And, you know, how much money is that? shouldn't that be tons of money coming into the system? And why would it be running out if there's people paying into the system? Now, this is a really, really good question. And it prompted me to do some research. And what I found straight from the social security website, uh, by the way, I'll share the resources with you in the show notes. So this is literally, if you go to ssa.gov, socialsecurityadministration.gov, this is where all of this information is coming from. So when we talk about social security taxes, these are the FICA taxes that you see on your paycheck. So this is um, typically if you work for someone else, you're, you are going to pay 6.2% of your wages into the social security system. And then your employer is going to pay the other 6.2%. So that's the payroll tax for social security specifically. If you are self-employed, so most of my audience, right, we are self-employed business owners, we pay the full 12.4%. So we pay the employee side and we pay the employer side. So 6.2% from the employee side, 6.2% from the employer side, total of 12.4% is what we pay in payroll taxes is what it's deemed um, as if you look at your QuickBooks or anything like that. Now that is on wages of up to $160,200 in 2023. So for anyone who makes less than or up to $160,200, that amount, 6.2% or 12.4% is going to be taken out of that income as your as your social security tax. What that means is let's say you make $200,000. Well, you have $39,800 above that $160,200 maximum amount. So that $39,800 that gets you up to $200,000, that does not have the social security tax placed on it. That's what that means. So you can, you know, scale that up as well. If you make $400,000 a year, that means, you know, everything above $160,200, you do not pay the social security payroll tax on that amount. That's social security specifically. We're not going to go into anything else uh, right now, like Medicare or anything like that. So Bob's question was, Hey, you know, like, there are plenty of people who are making that much money and we're paying the maximum. We're paying, you know, 6.2% all the way up to $160,000. Where's all that money going? Okay. Well, let's go look at ssa.gov. Like I said, and what it shows is that in 2022, so last year, the total income to the social security trust fund, including interest was one point two two two. 
trillion dollars in 2022. So $1,222,000,000,000. That was $1.1 trillion from net payroll tax contributions. So that's people's pay, you know, but their paychecks, $1.1 trillion from people's paychecks, this, you know, social security wage tax, 49 billion from taxation of social security benefits. And what that means is if, if you receive social security benefits, but your total income is over a certain amount, then a portion of your social security benefits will be taxable. So a little bit of a sidetrack there, but $49 billion came into the social security trust fund from people's social security benefits being taxed. Again, we're not going to go into that right now. I know it's a little bit um, crazy to think that, okay, you paid taxes into the system and now your social security benefits are also being taxed. We're not going there right now. Um, We're just looking at numbers. And then $66 billion into the trust fund was from interest. So on what's in the trust fund right now, it earned $66 billion of interest for a total of $1,222,000,000,000 coming into the system in 2022. That sounds like a lot of money. And it is a lot of money. A trillion dollars is, I mean, you couldn't actually um, understand the scale of a trillion dollars if you saw it in front of you is basically um, the truth of it. It's it's a massive amount of money. It truly is. And the other aspect, so what do we need to know about Social Security? My next question was, okay, so we had $1,222,000,000,000 go into the trust fund from the annual payments into the system. All right, well, how much was paid out? How much went out of the system? And what we're seeing, again, from SSA.gov, the fact sheet for Social Security, and what what they are expecting in 2023 is that the total benefits paid out during this year will equal $1.4 trillion. So $1,400,000,000,000 will go out from the system. So we received 1.222 trillion in, in 2022, 1.4 trillion will go out in 2023. So there is a gap. There's a gap here. And that gap, the size of that gap is $178 billion, $178 billion. So think about that. That, that gap right there, that's what has to be covered from the trust fund, from the trust fund that exists right now for social security. Okay, got it. So we've got some coming in, we've got more going out. So just like, you know, any balance sheet, if you've got more going out than is coming in, you have to pull from some sort of fund, some sort of savings account, if you want to put it that way. All right, well, what's the uh, what's the trust fund at? What's the social security savings account at? In 2023, the report, again, from SSA.gov, shows that there is $2,830,000,000,000 in the social security trust fund. So $2.83 trillion. What we just went over was that $178 billion 
is short so far this year. That's what has to come out of the trust fund in order to make sure everyone gets their benefit paid. Now, if our savings account, we'll call it that, if our savings account is at $2,830,000,000, how many times can you take out $178,000,000,000 before that goes away? Right? That's the calculation. That's the thing that we are looking at when, you know, they're saying projecting when Social Security will run out. Obviously, there's a ton of math that goes into that um, as far as what exactly, you know, we're going to talk about the interest um, that we expect to come into the trust fund, which is going to help. We're also going to talk about, you know, how many baby boomers are retiring, and that's actually going to you know, cause more benefits to be paid out, people retiring, less paying into the system, more taking out of the system, right? So there's a ton of complicated math that goes around this whole system. But what that right now, if we look at just the numbers right now, 178 billion could come out of that 2 trillion 830 billion for about 15 to 16 years, not including interest payments, not including anything else, right? But just, just you know, $2.83 trillion divided by $178 billion is just under 16. So we can see that even with the interest, right? So we, we saw the $66 billion in interest that came into the system. That's not very much compared to that $178 billion shortfall. It's not going to make up the whole difference that we need it to make up. So what's the answer? I don't know. I'm not a policymaker. <laughs> that's not the uh, that's not where I'm going with this. I I, I don't have the answers um, to what we need to do about Social Security. But I thought it was really really interesting to dig into the numbers a little bit and and see like actually see oh okay. Yes, we are seeing the money come in. We are seeing more money go out. And this is the trust fund amount that we would have to, you know, draw upon to cover the shortfall. So that's it. That's that's the answer there. Um, is that it received a one trillion two hundred and twenty-two billion dollars in twenty twenty-two. That's the money that came in. And for twenty twenty-three, the expectation is one trillion 400 billion that will be paid out of the system. So yeah, it's a little bit upside down right now. Um, and there's, there's just a whole bunch of reasons for that. So if there are any questions, the other, the other question that went with that was, you know, when should I take my benefits? And the answer is it just, it still depends. It still depends on your situation. It still depends on, um, what your personal resources are and what that looks like for you and your household. So the other little piece I will say here is that, you know, I, I have gotten a lot of questions about this um, just in general, because I know a decent amount of, about social security. Um, so a lot of people will ask, oh, should I take my benefits early then? when they're, you know, maybe 62 years old, they're technically allowed to take their benefits, but they're still working. And so there's this, um, a little bit of a misunderstanding there with that particular role. So 
we're going to look up the social security uh, wage limit. If you're under full retirement age. So the nuance here, yes, if you're 62, technically you are able to take social security, but if you are age 62, that means you're not at full retirement age yet. And if you earn above $21,240, they will deduct $1 from your benefit for every $2 you earn above that limit. What does that mean? That means if you earn $21,242 in the year, in 2023, they will take away $1 from your benefit. Multiply that by many thousands. Say you're still working full time. Say you're still making um, six figures. You are going to be earning too much to actually receive a benefit that, you know, that deduction, $1 for every $2 above 21,240, that's going to wipe out the benefit. So if you are working full-time or if you're working part-time and making, you know, more than that, that max maximum wage amount, social security is not going to, it's, it's not going to be there. It's not, you're not going to get that benefit. Does it mean the benefit goes away forever? No, it does not. There's more detail around that as well. We don't need to go into right now, but just know that if you are still working, if you're not retired yet, there's a lot more to look at. It's not, it's not a cut and dry question about, can I take my social security, you know, if I'm over 62. Now, once you do reach your full retirement age, Let's say you're still working and you enjoy working. You don't want to stop working and you're age 66 or age 67 right now. Let's say you're 67 right now and you're still working and you are earning, um, let's say $160,000 and you're like, I love my job. It's great. It's going, going great. I don't want to stop. You can actually take your social security benefit if you want to, and there will not be any sort of reduction. You'll get your full benefit because you've reached your full retirement age. You don't have a limit on how much you can earn outside of social security. You can take that benefit. Now, should you take that benefit? That's where it gets more complicated and where you have to have you know, a, a more detailed conversation with a financial advisor um, because could it make sense? Sure, maybe it could, or it could make more sense for you to wait until age 70 after you've gotten all of the extended credits for allowing your benefit to um, keep growing to age 70. So who knows, right? Like I can't give you an answer to that because it is going to depend fully on your situation. Um, but know that if you're under your full retirement age, which is right now for most people who are close to retirement, it's around, you know, 66 and a half to 67 years old. If you're less than that, and you're still working, the wage cap is 21,240 before your benefits start, you know, being taken away in social security. So that's what I wanted to talk about with social security. Um, and if you have any more questions about that, I am happy to talk about it. Um, it's something that, you know, 
we all pay into. It's a tax that we pay um, to help support the people who need it. Most of the people who do receive social security, um, you know, that's the main source of income they have in their elder, elder years. And so it's an important social benefit that we provide for people. Um, so that's one of the things that I just, I think about when, you know, I, I have to pay payroll taxes to you as a business owner. Um, my husband pays payroll taxes on his W2 job and we're supporting, we're supporting people. Um, and so I'm just, I'm grateful. I'm grateful for that aspect of being able to be a social safety net. So there's my little take on that. Let's move over to this infinite banking concept. So this is really interesting. Um, and I've gotten lots of different questions lately um, about this. So infinite banking, what is it? If you've heard the term and you're like, I don't know what it is at all, you know, that's that was me um not too long ago, also, because you know, honestly. Um, I really only work on life insurance with people when it's when it's a, a true need for their situation. Um, so for context, you know, I am a certified financial planner. Um, I have been a financial advisor for, you know, quite a while. I've been in the financial industry for a long time. Um, and insurance is an important aspect of doing comprehensive financial planning, making sure that you're protected, uh, in case of an, you know, in case you pass away um, prematurely, it's a really important thing to to think about and to talk about and to, you know, figure out with, especially if you are married and have children. Um, that's when it's that's when it's most important to at least understand um, what you what you might need in this case. So, you know, if you pass away prematurely and you are the main wage earner for your family that or even if you know you're a two income household and both of you you know make about the same amount of income if one of you passes away your income cuts in half right and usually our lifestyle is built around if we have a two income household our lifestyles are typically built around both of those incomes so if we have kids you know then it is actually an important um, a very important consideration for our financial picture to make sure that we understand how much life, insur life insurance would be beneficial for us. So I, I said all of that just to make it very clear that I do think life insurance is important and, 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 and I think it's also oversold in a lot of cases. So I have seen Mm, I'm going to use the word egregious. I've seen egregious use of life insurance sales um, that feel very predatory. When I look at a client and see that they have 10, 12, 15, literally 15 life insurance policies that have been sold to them over and over and over again, because their life insurance agent just kept calling and saying, Hey, you know, I think it would be good. I mean, this, yeah, not to go into that situation too deeply, but it was surprising. It was surprising and it was not a one-time thing either. I've seen that multiple times where people just trust. People trust that, okay, this person has my best interest at heart and must be something I should have. And I should just keep getting new, you know, life insurance policies. No, 
no, I do not agree with that at all. I, I think that's predatory. Um, and so with life insurance, I've, I've just always been uh, wary is what I'll say. I'm always going to mm, look for the truest need and speak only to the truest need when it comes to what, you know, what is helpful for insurance from a, from a life insurance and a disability insurance standpoint. Um, and then, you know, I am not a property or casualty or a health insurance advisor. Those, those insurances are all separate. Um, I don't deal with any of those. Personally, I recommend people out who, who do deal with those different pieces. So infinite banking is a little bit different because it's not about um, a particular, like any company's policy. It's it's a certain way to use whole life insurance, uh, excuse me, or otherwise, you know, permanent life insurance policies. So I'm gonna I'm gonna back up a little bit here again too. So when I am looking at a client situation. Most of the time we are looking at term life insurance. Now, why are we usually looking at term life insurance? We're usually looking at term life insurance because you can get a lot of term life insurance for a low premium amount for most individuals, especially if you are on the healthier side. Um, and, you know, especially for your age, if you're, if your weight, height and weight ratios, all of that, if, and um, you don't have any existing medical con- conditions, you can typically get, you know, a million dollars of life insurance for less than a hundred dollars a month, sometimes way less, sometimes like 50 or $60 a month. If you are, um, if you're particularly healthy and, um, that's for a 20 year policy. So what that means is you would pay into that policy. You would pay that amount. Let's say we'll call it $60 a month. You'll pay $60 a month for a million dollars of life insurance for 20 years. And that premium will not go up. If you buy level term, it will, that premium will always stay the same for the entire length of time for that policy. Why is that important? It's important because like at work, for example, if you work for a company, um, your life insurance premiums, if you get life insurance through your company, your life insurance premiums will go up based on your age. So every time you hit a new age band, you know, so when you're 38, 38 and 39, you'll be at one price. When you hit 40, it's going to go up. When you hit 43, 44, it's going to go up again. Your, your cost for insurance is going to go up with your age. So when we lock in a level term life insurance policy, instead, your premium will never go up. If it's $60 now and you're 35 years old, it's going to be $60 when you're 54 years old, when that policy is about to expire. Okay. So you get, when I say like you get a million dollars for that, like that's literal examples that I have, you know, quoted in the last couple of months here. So that is not um, an exaggerated amount you can get, you can get that, um, and have a million dollars of coverage on your life. So if you pass away within that 20 year time period, your beneficiary is going to get that million dollars paid out to them tax-free for the most part that it, they will almost always be tax-free. There are caveats to that. 
here and there, not very many, but just so you know. Um, the flip side of that, so with term, again, with term life insurance, it is um, not very expensive and you can get a high amount of insurance that will actually be protective. It will, you know, if you pass away and you have a mortgage, for example, if you have a million dollars of life insurance, then you might be able to, your, your beneficiary might be able to choose to pay off the house or they might be able to choose to fully fund your children's education, or they might be able to, you know, take some time to grieve and not have to, you know, um, keep working no matter what, just to make sure that the bills get paid. Um, because that can become very scary, especially if, especially if one spouse is the main wage earner and the other is not, um, that can be a very, very tough situation to, to be in. Um, to be the one that was not the main wage earner and suddenly all the bills are due and you don't have any resources to, with which to pay them, you know, outside of, hey, I got to go get a job really fast. Um, we've seen that before and it's heartbreaking and that's not what you want to experience. Um, and that's not what you most people would want their spouse to experience, either or their partner um, or their children. So that is one of the reasons, you know, for term life insurance is a million dollars, the right amount for you. I don't know. That was just, just an example. 500,000 might be the right amount or 2 million might be the right amount. It just all depends. The flip side of that is whole life insurance, W H O L E whole life insurance. And what whole life insurance is, is insurance that will continue for your entire life. So where term life insurance stops at 20 years or 30 years or 15 years, whatever the term you choose, whole life insurance will go for your entire life. So no matter how long you live, this policy will pay out um, when you die. It will pay out to your beneficiaries. The other types of permanent, so this is a type of permanent life insurance. The other types of permanent life insurance are universal uh, indexed universal life insurance and variable universal life insurance. So there are some different uh, types of life insurance available that is that are permanent that will always pay out as long as the policy is active and funded. So that's one of the biggest aspects here. With whole life insurance, though, that sixty dollar a month premium is going to get you almost nothing. Like truly. Um, the premiums are much, much higher for a much lower amount of insurance coverage because it is protecting you for your entire life. So one of the examples I'll give, you know, just thinking back to a, a previous client, I think they paid about $1,200. So about a hundred dollars a month for $100,000 of coverage. So it was almost double the premium cost for a 10th of the death benefit, right? So, and that's that's a true example um, as well. $100,000 of coverage cost about $100 a month. That doesn't mean that's um, what it would be in your case, but they were a pretty average, you know, normal, healthy, younger adult at the time. So you have to pay a much higher premium in order to get a higher benefit amount that would actually be protective. So you think about that as well. If you got $100,000 of life insurance insurance benefit if your partner passed away, is it going to help? Absolutely. You're not going to you're not going to like 
get rid of that $100,000, but it's also not likely going to, you know, cover as much as you actually need it to cover in order to be really helpful um, is the long and the short of that. Typically, you know, when we see a need for life insurance, when I'm running a financial plan, the life insurance need is going to be more in that 500 million, you know, million and a half range, not a hundred thousand dollars. So infinite banking then is based on a principle of whole life insurance that allows you to take loans from the policy cash value. That's one of the things with whole life insurance is that when you pay money in, typically most life insurance policies, um, when you pay money in for the premium, it goes into what's called a cash value amount. And so your cash value will build over time. There's different aspects of whole life insurance, you know, different types rather, where sometimes if you have that, we'll use hundred thousand as just the base, you have a hundred thousand dollar policy. You've been paying your premiums for quite a while. You now have $5,000 of cash value from paying your premiums in. Part of that is going to pay the premium. Part of it is accruing in a cash value, you know, bucket. And some policies, if you say you passed away right at that at that moment, some policies will pay just the hundred thousand. That's the benefit. You get a hundred thousand. Other policies will pay you the hundred thousand plus the cash value. So it would be like a hundred and five thousand, right? So that's that's different um, nuances with whole life insurance that you can look at. But again you're not really building a ton of cash value at that level. With infinite banking, what they're expecting you to do is get a bigger policy. And this varies. And when you look it up online, they'll say that you can, you know, they'll tailor the benefit amount to what you need and how much you can pay in premium. But what what you're actually doing, the goal is to build a, pretty substantial cash value in the account underneath the life insurance itself, build up a lot of cash value so that you can take loans against the policy. Now you can literally loan yourself money from your life insurance. If you've got the cash value there, let's say you actually have a $500,000 whole life insurance policy, and you've been making pretty big premium payments and you've got $50,000 of cash value in there. You could loan yourself some money. Maybe maybe you want to take 15000 out. You can loan yourself 15000 from the cash value, and then you just pay a, you know, a relatively low interest rate on the loan itself, while the remainder of your cash value continues to compound at whatever interest rate is within the policy, which is usually, you know, usually think about like higher yield savings accounts. So maybe right now that might be around four, four to five percent, maybe. So your cash value is building and you're just paying a fairly low interest rate on the money that you've borrowed out of the policy. There are other tax benefits as well. Um, so I'm not ignoring those in this discussion. I just 
am not going to focus on those um, because that gets kind of into the weeds of what infinite banking is suggesting. Um, but there are, you know, benefits to funding life, permanent life insurance, funding it at a higher level, and then taking loans from the policy tax-free. So it, that it is, it is a very legitimate strategy. I will, I will say that. The issue that I want to address with this, and one of the things that you know, it, it sounds, it sounds great. It really does. I mean, it sounds like, oh, great. I can infinite bank. I can be my own banker. I can, you know, save money and then lend it to myself and I'm not paying anyone else interest. And, you know, the rest of my cash value is still building, um, accruing interest while it's sitting in there. And if I pass away, I've got this life insurance that's going to pay out to my beneficiaries. What's the downside? And there is a lot of upside. I agree. It can be a really, really great strategy to utilize. The downside is that you have to fund this policy at a much higher rate than what's even quoted. So if it's saying for a $500,000 policy, just throwing out examples here, these are these are just purely examples. If it's saying that, you know, to minimum fund the policy, to make sure that you keep the $500,000 of coverage in place, you need to pay, we'll just use the example I used before, $500 a month or $6,000 a year to keep that policy in place. That's not really going to build you any cash value. That's just going to keep the insurance in place. So it's not going to do the job of the infinite banking system. It's not going to build the cash value. Instead, what you can do is there's a maximum funding allowed level. And this is set by the IRS. Um, and it depends on how much, you know, what the what the total insurance coverage amount is that's going to that's going to give you the limit of what you are allowed to put into the policy for it to still be considered life insurance. That amount is going to be, you know, let's say that's more like $12,000 or $15,000 that you can put into the policy. The infinite banking system actually hinges on you being able to put that $12,000 or $15,000 into the policy every single year for at least five to seven years in order for the cash value to build up to a place where you can then start to take loans from it. And the true, true aspect of these policies is that they will live longer. They will support themselves longer. They will work better if you allow them to grow for much, much longer than that. So, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, if you let that cash value grow, that is where this is a very powerful tool and it can work really well. It does not work well if you think I'm going to put $15,000 into that policy for two or three years and then start taking it out, it will collapse. That policy will not last. It will collapse on itself. It will not be able to cover its internal expenses. And that's when the either the life insurance just goes kaput and it's it's done, or you are then set, you know required, if you want to keep it going, to put in more money to make sure that the policy can stay alive. So there's there are a ton of different options. There are a ton of different providers that have, you know, really um, 
I'm going to say clever. I'm going to use the word clever uh, because, you know, there there's, uh, you can be really nuanced with life insurance and create a lot of um, interesting, interesting little side benefits and side uses and different stuff like that. So every life insurance carrier is going to have different like perks or um, unique benefits to them to try and make the policies more attractive to buyers, obviously. Um, But no matter what, the bottom line is on any of these permanent life insurance policies, if you're doing this as a way to create this infinite banking system or this way to pull um, tax-free tax-free benefits out at some point in the future, you need to understand that you're going to have to put a decent amount of money in every single year for quite a few years in order for the policy to take off and be able to support itself. When I um, when I have looked at variable universal life insurance policies as an example um, with clients in the past, Typically, we're looking at like ten thousand would be the minimum, and ten thousand uh, dollars of benefit for. Gosh, what was that? Probably a, I think that was a four hundred thousand dollar policy, and we needed to put ten thousand dollars in each year for ten years or fifteen years in order for that policy to stay viable and for it to grow and to hit a point with it where the cash value would then start to grow on its own. If you're looking to actually create something where it's like, oh, I have quite a bit of money in there, you know, um, that would look more like having a $750,000 policy and you're going to pay 20 grand a year into that policy for a good 10 years in order for this this, um, system in the cash value to actually flip over uh, to being self-sufficient where the cash value is growing on its own and supporting the life insurance uh, need and you're able to pull money out. So what is the, what is the, um, what do I want to say? As a CFP, as a certified financial planner, as someone whose sole duty to my clients is to always and only recommend what's in their best interest at all times, what I believe about permanent life insurance is that you have to have a decent amount of discretionary income outside of what you are already saving for your future goals in order for these policies to actually make sense. So what does that mean? That means if you are already, you know, maximum funding, let's say you have a 401k or you know, if you're a business owner, you have um, a simple IRA or a SEP IRA of some sort, you are already easily able to max fund those accounts for the tax benefits that you'll receive. Um, you are already you know, saving for your kid's education at the amount that you want to save. You are already able to fully fund your cash reserves um, so that no matter what happens, you, know, you have a good three to six month buffer in your cash reserve accounts. Um, you know, if you want to take vacations, you've got vacation money, right? So that looks like, you know, your the rest of your financial situation feels comfortable. It feels like you are on track. And then these permanent life insurance policies take the excess 
take the extra discretionary income. If you have twenty to thirty thousand dollars still after you've per year, every single year, after you've already funded all of your education and retirement and you know vacation accounts and you know paid for all the stuff that you want and need to do and paid for your kids to do stuff that they want and need to do and if you are easily living your lifestyle the way that you want to and still have 20 to 30,000 dollars left over every single year just accruing yes then it's a great option to look at these permanent life insurance policies and the different tax benefits that they'll provide other than that i i don't necessarily recommend that people go into these types of products because of the complexity and because of the need for you to be um be okay with putting away a large amount of money for you know at least uh, one of the some of the websites I see say at least five years, but that's rarely enough. It usually needs to be seven to ten years that you're able to put away, you know, that 10, 15, 20 thousand dollars easily in order for this policy to start working the way it's supposed to work. And then at that point, yes, absolutely. Amazing. It's a great strategy, but it is not, it is not the generational wealth for everyone um, that is being touted right now that I see a lot in um, just in circles and people who mainly sell life insurance and as their, as their main form of business, you know, whole life insurance is not the generational wealth transfer that, that they're billing it to be um, because it takes a decent amount of current today income in order to fund these policies. So I got on a little bit of a soapbox there. Um, and I feel pretty strongly about that actually. Uh, so there, (laughs) there are all my opinions, um, about life insurance and also, you know, a pretty, um, Uh, I don't know if that was a decent primer on infinite banking or not. You tell me. So uh, if you have any more questions or if you have had a different experience or, you know, if you want to disagree with me or anything, I am fully open to hearing your thoughts, your opinions um, and your questions. So send me more questions. I would love to hear them. And we will see you again next Friday. Brad should be back. Um, for Investment Friday next Friday. And uh, you'll be seeing some other new episodes with some cool people in the next little bit here. So send me your questions, like I said, to Hannah at expansiveceo.com or anywhere you follow me on socials. Um, I'm happy to answer and give you my you know, opinions as a, as a CFP and someone who has been helping clients through a lot of these things for a long time. And until next time, I hope you have an awesome, awesome week. See you then. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening and be sure to like and subscribe. And again, if anything resonated with you from this episode, I would love to hear from you. Email me at Hannah, H-A-N-N-A-H at expansiveceo.com and tell me about it. And if you're ready for your greatest expansion, You can find ways to work with me at ExpansiveCEO.com and at XSquaredWealthPlanning.com. That's X, the numeral two, WealthPlanning.com. So until next time, remember that there is enough 
You are enough, and your birthright in this lifetime is to be expansive.